And welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus and joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Marcus. John, what's going on? Oh, you already know. It's another episode, another opportunity to do what we do best, Steve. And that is giving the people what they want. That's right. Another day to dive deep into one of the challenging aspects of coaching. Before we get into that, just a reminder that we have our scholar program going strongly. We just finished up a section on the psychology of coaching, and we're about to head into what I'll just call our Canovathon of training programs of the famed coach Renato Canova. So this has here it comes. Yes, sir. Gosh, yes. It's, it's taken a long time to go through it all, organize it, but man, is it there is so much. It's juicy. There. It's thick. Yes, and we'll we'll also be dropping in. I'll be dropping in with some commentary on it as well. Uh, I sat down with. Renat, uh, Coach Canova, oh man, for about three, four hours several years ago at the Prefontaine Classic for lunch. Brilliant mind, brilliant coach. Fun fact about him, he eats fruit and pasta on the same plate. It was awesome. I was like, oh, okay. I, I would never there, have thought of that combo. But hey. There we go. There you go. <laughs> Fun fact. Uh, behind the scenes information <laughs> Yes. Here. Fruit and pasta. I loved it. Tomatoes, <laughs> apples, oranges, and just pasta with marinara sauce. Love the Italians, man. You know, everyone does it a little differently. So, anyways, let's jump into today's topic, which is getting race ready, preparing to perform after a layoff. Now, if you can't understand why this is relevant right now, or at any time, really, then, you know, maybe stop listening. <laughs> Uh, but but when we're recording this we're coming off again it's pandemic season pandemic year and a lot of us are coming off a long layoff but it doesn't just uh, apply during this unique situation a lot of times we have athletes who are coming off a long bout of injury who are coming back from sickness who are maybe just coming back from a, a break away from the sport or from racing for a while. And yeah, a redshirt year or something like that, yeah. Exactly. There's all sorts of situations. And I think what we often do as a coach is just be like, all right, jump back into the training, throw you in some races, and see what happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's the easiest, but also probably the sloppiest approach. Um, just because, yeah, you know, I get how there's simplicity to that, um, mindset where it's like, well, you're going to learn best by doing the thing, um, you know, itself, which is racing, but there's a certain amount of psychological and also physiological preparedness that we need to go in to have a positive racing experience. I personally, Steve, I'm not a fan of the rip the bandaid off as quick as possible mentality just because of the potential psychological fallout that can happen in that short term that then really shakes an athlete's confidence. Yeah, I, I'm in agreement here because let's let's step back and think about the psychology and the science of this a little bit. Um, 
So the difference between even if you've been working out, if you've been doing time trials or whatever, the difference is racing is is almost like a threat, right? Because we're judged, we have a place, we get to see where we stand. We're not just, you know, lining up against our teammates who we see every day. If we lose or win, there are perceived, you know, uh, consequences or perceived um, improvements or demotion in our quote-unquote status. All of these things are heavily ingrained in our our you know, human psychology here. So when we race, there's a lot more um, at at stake to a degree. And what happens is if we start ingraining bad patterns or bad habits, it takes us from the state of competing to win or competing for the enjoyment of it to where we can start to have this fear around racing and competing. Right. And it's not just like this, oh, that's mental, like fear. It's also physiological in the sense that if you look at what happens when we race and when we we start to fall off the pack and start to lose, mm-hmm. we actually have a very strong and distinct stress response, right? Huge cortisol yes. levels. You know, cortisol levels shoot up, we're stressed out, you know, we're falling behind our competitors. And if that becomes like a normal physiological reaction where over time and time it happens again, then then at the slightest hint of falling off the pace, at the slightest hint of losing, we might have this exaggerated stress response, which makes it even more difficult to compete. And those things happen quick, too. I think that's the thing we, we tend to forget as coaches because we can't see it manifest physically. Uh, But that endocrine response, right, those glands secreting those hormones, once the perception is there, that trigger creates a rapid cascade effect. And I've had athletes who we threw them into the fire, things were going, you know, uh, according to plan, they felt like, you know, they had uh, good momentum going. And then all of a sudden, they reached that wall or this barrier physically. And then it got compounded uh, with a um, recession from that moment to then like literally, you know, almost jogging because, again, they were just so freaked out and scared uh, because of the response uh, physically that they had come up against and were ill prepared for in that moment. uh, And then psychologically just compounded those losses in their head to make it this huge, humongous threat. And I think we have to be super sensitive to that as coaches when we're bringing people back to the racing crucible after a long either layoff from racing or being in what we find ourselves in the current moment, this uh, hyper time trial state where everything is evenly paced, perfectly set up, you know, um, very predictable because racing inherently of itself is volatile and there's a a certain degree of uh, unpredictability to it. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought up that because it can be very dramatic. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've all seen seen an athlete go from looking pretty good, looking all right, until the wheels just come all the way off, you know? And I, I, I think you also brought up a point there that a lot of times, like from a coaching standpoint, we handle that wrong in the sense that 
we start, you know, uh, getting on the athlete, blaming them, you know, all that stuff, which just all that does is it it reinforces that pattern of like, oh, I should have been threatened. I should have been stressed. Like this was quote unquote life or death. And it just, you know, almost re-engages that, that stress response, reinforces it so that, you know, it, it was the right call to have that stress, which is something that you don't want to do. And I think when we're looking at coming back from a long layoff of not racing is, is we risk that to an even greater degree because um, we're not, we're not prepared for it. We're not ready for the uncertainty, as you said, you know, in a lot of ways I look at it as similar to what happens when you're, you're, you're out of shape and you, you do that first hard workout back, right? And that first Howard workout back after coming back from injury and being out of shape, I can tell you this with 100% certainty as someone who has frequently come back from injury and been out of shape, is that alarm bell in your head goes off so early because you haven't gone through this crucible of, of training hard and racing hard. Mm-hmm. And in training, we, we scaffold people up. Right, because we acknowledge that not only from a physical standpoint, but from a psychological standpoint. Well, in racing, I think we have to look at it in, in a similar standpoint: as okay, do we want to throw this person to the fire, or do we want to have some sort of scaffolding or pre- preparation to get them ready so that they're in a place where, even if they can't uh, accomplish what they they think they want to in this moment. That their expectations, their um, you know, their expectations are at a appropriate level, so that they don't ingrain this kind of like freak out, stressed out, like going backwards um, response. And I think that's a good point, Steve. Is we want to create this kind of like momentum in an athlete that's returning to racing, and so as a coach, our job a key part of it is to create that expectation for that race and for the, you know, continuation of race to race, right? Because we cannot escape, as you said earlier, the fact that we are status seeking creatures. Status is really important. And in this day and age, now more than ever with any athlete, it doesn't matter, right? You see kind of how the psychology of status has manifests itself, in the ability to share and present your status on all the different social media platforms and why people get obsessed with what their Strava records are, their Strava accumulations, their Strava data, right? Because those are daily status quotas that people can demonstrate efficacy or hierarchy. Whereas racing typically before the mass proliferation of all this um, social media stuff, was the moment when you demonstrated status or fitness or ability, right? And it's almost like we have to step back and remember what matters most is the actual competition and the racing. And that's where status is the most important. And this is where it takes a lot of temperament on the athlete's part and also on the coach to set a foundation of expectation and say, look, what matters is the difficult efforts and the hard stuff or the challenges and not, you know, getting the, taking the easy way out and building your status up on your 
easy days or being quote unquote that workout warrior, right? And this is where you see this all the time. People are doing workouts way at a very high level and training at what looks like to be a very high level and documenting every point of that journey. And then they get to a race and then they compete at a, a level lower than what one would expect for their training capacity and ability. And they don't know why. And part of that is due to the psychology of it, I think. The part of it is thinking like those race results will come easy and the concept that racing is easy if you've done the work. Racing is never easy. Like the, 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 never. And I think we got to remember it's never easy. It's just at what level might be easy comparative to like a freshman in high school who can first runs a 800 runs 220. Well, two years of development and training and racing, 220 might be rep pace for them in their junior or senior year. And that's easy now, but they're not satisfied with like, oh, hey, yeah, now I can just run 220 or 219 for 800 in practice and it's easy. No, of course they want to like test their limits. And inherently that's what we have to get the athlete recalibrated to is testing their limits, but in an unpredictable, volatile environment. And, this is why coaches and athletes and a lot of people love the time trial stuff and time trial races because it's pre- high predictability. And then you get this status of, I ran this time. Look at me, social media world, all the likes. Oh my gosh, I got this ranking and it's great. But you know what? You got to go back to what matters most, which is championships, 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 I think, or or your um uh, key, you know, your goal, your target race, whether that's like a Boston marathon, a, you know, half marathon, whatever, and just f- laser focus on knocking a home run out of the park there. But understanding the steps along the way, you don't necessarily need to celebrate this amazing overall, you know, achievement of physical prowess or demonstration. And I think sometimes nowadays, more than ever, we get caught in that cycle of keeping up with the Joneses instead of waiting for that big pop to happen uh, and preparing for it and also preparing the athletes psychologically for it as well. Yeah, you know, it's uh, you brought up so many good points there because it is this interplay between status and expectations and all of these things. You know, I'm reminded of uh, the book Top Dog by Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman goes through you know, actually from a gender standpoint, how we slightly view these statuses uh, differently. You know, um, I think in the book they cited some research that, <clears throat> that you know, uh, generally women tend to work better in small groups. Um, well, men tend to, you know, work better in larger groups on sorting these things out. And it's interesting. Um, I'm going to generalize here, so forgive me, listeners, but if you've coached high school or uh, college women before, or and Ben, it happens to a degree, but again, based on Merriman and Baronson's work, women tend to have it more. But if you have a large group of them who haven't run together on the track, and you just tell them to, to you know, hey, run this 480 or this, you know, 800 in three minutes or whatever it is, right? What tends to happen is they don't fall into a single file line. Right? No, no, not at all. 
<laughs> they they go out into lane two, sometimes lane three, sometimes they're four wide, sometimes you know it even ends up five wide on the on the you know straightaway. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I've seen it. And and you're sitting there, and you know a lot of that is expected, but let's let's think about what's going on there, right? You're running, you know, let's say you repeat eight hundreds in three minutes, right? Maybe five or six. It's not. This isn't a crazy workout. It's not a race. It doesn't define things. It doesn't matter who, you know, whether you run 301 or 259, really. Um, it doesn't matter where you finish in, you know, whether you're the top person across the line or the fifth person across the line, as long as you're with the pack. But still, there is jostling. There are slight, almost what I call micro moves to position yourself. There is going wide. Why does that happen? It's it's this this inner psychology of this competition, this status, this like my pecking order is in in this spot, and it's not to downplay anyone, right? On doing this, this is again ingrained in our our psychology, something that works. But and it's not like this is a lot of times a conscious decision of like, oh, I'm going to one up this person all the time. It's just. It's it's a great example of how how it works. Now, we're talking about that in in practice, right? In practice this this occurs on a micro level. Now, what do you think happens when we go into a race? It's amplified 10x because you know, now we've got we're judged, we're based on place, you know, all this different stuff. Well, there's the feeling of a broader audience too in a race, right? Whether yes. you're competing with a lot of people in the stands or no one, nowadays your result instantly goes up on the internet in some way, shape, or form, right? And you might be filmed and going up on the internet in some way, shape, or form, right? So the scope of the audience has gone huge. Like just as a side tangent, I remember in high school, I would compete and, you know, my coach would be like, oh, we're going to have, it's going to send a message, you know, today, like type race, even though it's like this little dual meet against kind of like this very dilapidated, uh, you know, uh, high school track team that only has like, you know, we had a big team of like 200 people against another team that only had 50 people out. And so our coach was trying to find tactics to motivate us, you know, and be like, oh, okay, we'll send a statement. Because what happened was, your results would get back in those days published in the newspaper and then everyone could see in the the index of the sports section in the newspaper the results from the high school track meets of the previous day right and Mm -hmm. because he gave us this concept that there's this huge audience even though it's some crappy weather early march dual meet against you know a team that we easily beat on the dual meet standings it motivated us as young persons to think in the scope of a broader audience. Now that's exponentially magnified to the, you know, thousandth, you know, degree because <laughs> it's all on the internet. And so you got to remember that so much nowadays. It doesn't matter the age, young, old, whatever. We are humans and so we're all susceptible to that gamification and status. Yeah, and it's even it's even more so because like you can quantify really in real time how many people actually read that newspaper no yeah right right but like i can get direct feedback on 
how many people liked my Instagram post of my race? How many people liked it on Twitter? How many people shared this? How many people commented that? Mm-hmm. So the stat, the status game is like, you know, from when we grew up, like 10x. And it felt really strong back then. So I can only imagine, you know, what it what it feels like now in the sense that you're no longer competing against you know the your district or your area or your region or whatever you're literally because of social media online internet like even mile split all those things that track everything mm-hmm. you're literally in a competition against everybody yeah and it feels like that too and i think we have to be sensitive that as coaches nowadays and when we get people back going back to bring them back into racing not just throw them in you know, in the mix anymore, but actually prepare them psychologically and f- physically for that. And, you know, I think, Steve, we've talked a lot about the psychology of it, but I think let's get down to the meat and potatoes and talk about, say, how physically we get someone back and ready to compete at a high level. And I'd, I would actually love to hear how you did it with Roberta to get her back into competing after, you know, a long layoff to become one of the top marathoners at the world championship, you know, in Doha in 2019. Sure. Um, that's an interesting one. So I'll, I'll frame this in two things. So first in her initial comeback, she had a, another coach whose name is escaping me at my time. She did a great job of, of kind of bridging that gap and getting her back into competing again. And then over the last couple years, I, two years or so I've worked to kind of get her at to that next step at uh, Doha. And, you know, so I'll speak about, you know, my contribution or I, my work with her and seeing from, from that end is that a lot of it, a lot of it was like gradually getting used to and, um, making small jumps and letting her body kind of do the work on things. So for instance, going into that Doha world championship, right? We knew it was going to be very, very hot, you know, very slow, most likely. So the framing was pretty simple in the sense that it was ignore everybody else, execute your game plan and let's see what, what we can do on this thing. And I think getting back into, you know, after long layoffs, getting back is all about like setting those appropriate expectations and almost like surprising yourself to a degree. You know, I've I've been fortunate to watch from afar um, Kira D'Amato, um, who is coached by um, Scott Rasco. And Kira has had a phenomenal last two years of, again, another long layoff, right? She took, I don't know, a, 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 probably close to a decade off of, of running and racing. Um, because I remember we, she used to be part of our training group when I was in grad school way back in the day with Rasco and Webb and Moses Joseph and all those guys. So I remember, you know, her, her, starting that layoff at that time because of injury and then coming back and what was what's impressive in watching kira's kind of return is that it's been just a a focus i believe knowing rasco on on just kind of putting in the work and getting better and 
um, letting the times kind of come to you. Mm-hmm. Um, she didn't just jump into like, oh, I'm going to race, you know, this huge championship race and, you know, be at, at the top. If you look at her improvement in her racing, it was, you know, local races, small steps to the next steps to then big time to then I'm going to set these things up and throw myself in the fire and go for it and see what's there. And then also it's like not getting greedy, I think, in her breakthrough marathon or in her latest marathon, which she ran, I don't know, 222, 223, somewhere like that. She could have gone with Sarah Hall, right? And um, and uh, Kellen Taylor, who went with Sarah in that race, but she didn't. She stuck in the second group, right? And said, you know, that was, I'm on fire. This might be the thing to do. Let's like risk it and go for it. But like this is the this is where I'm at right now. I'm gonna play this game, and it paid off for her big time. And I think that when you're looking at getting people ready for the physical standpoint of of that, that's what it is. It's gradually adapting them without putting artificial time constraints on it. Same thing that we did with Roberta. Every race, every training that went in, it wasn't like okay, we've got to get at this point at this time and get ready. It was like the training and what you're doing is going to dictate the racing and the sense of this is what you're prepared for now. You know, we've done this. We're probably prepared for that. Let's try and go do that. It wasn't, oh man, Roberta, like you're in like the best shape of your life. Let's try and go run 225, even though the training says maybe 228, right? It's let's take what's given. You're prepared for that and go after that. I like that a lot, Steve, because I think, you know, we we got to come back to this concept of breakout performances, right? You know, like you hear you, those are very well publicized and they get a lot of media attention in a short um, media cycle of this person we never heard of, or this person did this and had this humongous breakthrough because they ran this really fast time that was a humongous PR, right? And we can get caught up on that hype. Um, but, you know, I think the thing you have to ask yourself is what is a breakthrough? Um, is it, I ran this time out of, you know, and I just had the stars were aligned and it was just this humongous PR and the conditions were all good. And then all of a sudden, you know, this is where I'm at now. Now is that your baseline effort or is that your, you know, your level of what we call like support? Um, you know, if you're thinking kind of in the Canova mindset, right? And, you know, the idea of resistance and support kind of like in the stock market. So you have resistance, which is like the upper end of your current capacity, and that's hard to maintain and, and hold. And as Canova talks about, as you'll hear in the um, scholar program, Canovathon that we're about to put out, talks about a lot about support and aerobic support. Brad Hudson talks about this too. That support level is the I can do this anytime level, no matter what. Bad night's sleep, didn't eat that much, no big deal. It's still a challenge, but it's very much, you know, low level of stress and very doable, right? To me, what a breakthrough is, is a breakthrough is when a previous level of resistance, a previous time or previous racing ability level that was previously resistance, then now becomes your support. Meaning if you had a tough time 
breaking nine flat in 3,000 meters. And all of a sudden, you had this huge PR and you ran 845. Now is the slowest that you can, you know, foreseeably run or with the least amount of effort and just a very stable state. Is that nine flat now? Or was that 845 just this amazing outlier, right? And you kind of saw this with Kira and even Sarah Hall this past, um, you know, COVID marathon, marathon year is like the Kira demonstrated kind of how Roberta did just a progressive steady line of new support, new ability. Hey, you can do this. Sarah, you know, is tends to be more of a, uh, a moonshot type person and wants to swing big and try to hit home runs. And I mean, Ryan Hall was the same way, right? And that makes for a really good storyline, but also very erratic and very volatile results. It's really up and down. And when it's up, it's up. It's awesome. We love it. But when it's down, it's down, <laughs> you know, and it's bad in terms of the, the relative performance outcome to perceived expectations. So a breakthrough to me is when you stabilize a new level of ability. And that's what I think we have to think as coaches. It's so easy to get caught up in the moonshot mentality of saying, let's go here and get this crazy fast time. And now all of a sudden you're ready to go forever. And that's not necessarily the case. I'll come back to, and not to throw anyone on their bus, but like a good example is like Christian Serratos, right? And I, I use him only because Daniel Herrera, who I still work with and is still training, um, and Christian were of the same year. And Christian had that amazing season at um, Montana State University um, where he broke through and ran this 357 indoor at Dempsey's before the super shoe phenomena and like was the talk of the town, right? And got a, you know, had a really, um, a lot of promise, got a big old contract with Adidas. But unfortunately, you know, his, you know, you hate to see that type of talent just kind of like bounce around and he never really materialized on that promise that he demonstrated indoors that year. Um, you know, he never made any kind of world championship or Olympic team, even though potentially a lot of people putting big bets on him from that quote unquote breakthrough performance, you know, versus like say Daniel, uh, he's still in very much in the game, just a working class type runner every year, just breaking four, breaking four, breaking four, you know, it's just, we have a funny, you know, a joke, like how many years in a row can you break four kind of like Nick Willis status. And he never broke four for the mile in, in college, right? UCLA. So, his new level of support is for flat, meaning, or sub four, like we expect and he expects to be in shape to kind of break four minutes in the mile or be constantly at that level, no matter what, right? Season in, season out. And so you have to ask yourself too, what's a breakthrough in that regard, right? And that's where I think we have to get away from this moonshot mentality and go as what Steve, you so eloquently talked about with Roberta, you know, demonstrating with Kira as well, this kind of like scaffolding approach of just legs up slowly and steadily uh, elevating someone to eat, whether that's within the season and coming back from a racing layoff or whether that's year to year and, and calibrating expectations accordingly. So, yeah. And, and I think those are some good points there. And I think uh, one thing that comes to mind too is the psychology at play here. I know we're talking about the physical standpoint, but um, if you have, you know, the, the moonshot, like a Sarah Hall does, like one of the reasons she can do that and, and 
still succeed on that to a large degree is she has this mentality of uh, being able to put things behind her very quickly, right? Yeah, yeah. I'll never forget, like, her first marathon when I was coaching her was absolutely, I mean, it was in the heat of L.A. and she fell apart, bombed, all that good stuff. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it was brutal. Yep. And then three weeks later, she came back and got, you know, top 20, I believe, at World Cross Country Championships. Um, and that's, like, her mentality, her quote-unquote superpower psychologically is the ability to kind of put things behind, move on, like, on to the next one very quickly. Now, for some of us, a lot of us, that doesn't happen. Even though we might think, like, okay, I'm going to move on, it, stuff stings. It sticks with us. It becomes, like, we have this question mark in the back of our mind the next time we line up for a race is, like, well, last time didn't go very well. And if you look at the, the for instance, the East Africans, a lot of times they have this mentality that Sarah Hall has. Oh, in yeah. The sense that, you know, you'll hear, you'll, you'll see, you know, you'll hear one after they've absolutely blew up in a race. Afterwards, they'll, they'll, they'll talk to the media and they'll be like, next time I will get the world record. And yeah. in your head, you're just like, what are you but talking you just, about? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You just had a horrible race. What do you mean next time you're going for the world record? But it, but and, it's, and, it's true. Like I coached uh, at the University of Portland when Alfred Kachumbo was there and arguably one of, you know, UP's best runners uh, and I think still the 10K school record holder. And Alf was – his thing is like, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Like he would bomb in a workout, just like get, you know, murdered by like the C-Squad guys. And you just, it's okay. It's okay. And then the next workout just crush everybody. You know, it was just, it's very bipolar on the surface. But the reality is like when the day's done, the book's closed on that day. It really has not a lot of bearing on what's the next sunrise is going to bring to them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what it is. And it's, it's, it's just this different ability to like kind of put things behind, move on and still retain your confidence and all that stuff. Um, and a lot of times Western athletes, it lingers, right? The, if I bomb a workout, all of a sudden I've got doubt in my mind for the next one that I'm doing and I'm hesitant and I'm seeing it a little as a threat like we talked about earlier. So a lot of it it's not that either is, you know, each has its its place. It's not good or bad. Um they're different skills and tools to use for this stuff, but a lot of it is acknowledging where you are psychologically and and how you handle these things. Like if you've got that that East African or that Sarah Hall mentality and you're okay with it, then to degree it you can trend more towards the, the go big or go home. If, if you don't like, and if stuff lingers and if your confidence is affected or impacted to a greater degree, then that's not a sign of doubt or weakness or anything like that. It's just, it's just a sign that, okay, like this, oh, I'm going to go for the, you know, go for broke probably isn't the strategy for you. And you were much better off using the kind of build the support model that, you know, you talked about there. Yeah. And I, that's also too, uh, I think a key thing to touch on in training is when training for a return to racing, racing is volatile, right? And so what we need to do is understand that there's predictable volatility. There's only so many ways a race can turn out, right? 
you have the go from the gun mentality. You have the even pace mentality. You have the surging mentality or surging um, style, right? You have the slow, 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 um, you know, fast, rapid kick at the end, right? There's like a handful of strategies that people will employ. The thing as a coach is to understand, all right, what are those strategies that are likely in the racing environment I'm going to present the athlete to? That is the goal race, the goal or the target race. If you're racing in a championship environment where potentially you're competing in adverse conditions, hot and humid, cold and snowy and windy, whatever, then you need to get them really prepared for surging, the ability to surge, and then also the ability to like charge home or like have a really rapid kick. If you're preparing for perfect conditions, right, like a lot of the time trial racing that's been happening of, of late and has been popular to get that mark, well, then you need to get them callous to being able to run and grind out at a certain tempo without um, blowing up and breaking down, right? And if you want them all, well, you need to, you know, be able to then understand there's seasonality to it or there's time to it about when and where to um, prepare for that type of ability. And this is what Canova, you know, really talks about as well is every good coach, they're good because they just focus on the one target scenario that they're preparing the athlete for. And they don't get too greedy and they remind the athlete not to get too greedy, right? So if you have that key point of focus, then you can prepare to that. But if you're trying to do everything, you know, and be good at all types of racing at all times, the the end up uh, reality is you're going to be very frustrated because you're just going to be a little bit prepared, but not adequately prepared for anything. And that's really tough. You know, that's such a good point. It's what are you preparing for? I mean, it's so simple, but it's such so important because like I think often as coaches, we try and be great at everything, right? And we try and be like, oh, we're going to be, you know, in peak shape at, you know, these different distances and peak shape in terms of time trial ability and racing ability and peak this, this, and this. And that's just not realistic. No. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's what, what are you preparing for? Which a lot of times, like you have to ask yourself some hard questions, yeah. you know? And, um, it, and when you see as a side caveat here, I hate to burst your bubble. When you see an athlete with wild range saying crushing at 10,000 meters and then crushing at 1500 meters, or crushing at 5,000 meters and crushing at marathon, you got to look at that with a certain degree of skepticism because they're different. It's as different as someone being like, well, I'm also, I'm a center and a point guard and a quarterback all at the same time at the professional level. You go, yeah, those are different skill sets, man. I don't know if I believe that, um, you know, I'm going to take that what's presented from me and just believe it at face value. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's what it is. And it's having that honest conversation. You know, I remember back when um, coaching Brian Barraza in college, for example, uh, once he took up the steeplechase and it looked like he was going to have a shot to do well, it was like, okay, like you could potentially win this thing or be in the hunt for it. What is our best approach to this? 
And for a while there, we worked on improving speed, which got better. And his mile time dropped down to 358 indoors and his 800 time improved and his ability to kick a little bit improved. But it was still like against the guys he was facing. If it came down to tactical and kicked, he was doomed. And we knew this. Well, not doom, doom, but, you know, it it, it wasn't going to be as high likelihood. And we knew this pretty simply because, you know, um, during the conference championships for four straight years, he went up against Mark Scott, right? And Mark was a phenomenal, you know, NCAA champ, I believe, in the 10K. Phenomenal runner, and they developed along, you know, similar lines in the sense of making it to national level and all this stuff. But like Brian might have must have raced Mark Scott, you know, twelve or thirteen times, and he he won one, right? And we try all these different tactics, all these different things, and like they'd all kind of not work to degree, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and then when we got in the steeple, his fifth year, it was like, well, we're gonna try and improve this and this and this, but like it became very apparent. It's like. You know, at this point in your career, you don't have that that last hundred like change of gear to to roll. You know, he was a kid who came in his freshman year and ran one fifty six flat out, like even splitting it the whole way. Yeah, I mean, right? at your le- at the level he was playing the game, he was a grinder for sure, not quote unquote elastic. Right, Ex- exactly. So. So, going into that, that meant like NCAA champs, you know, most of the time we were just like, well, you know, you're going to have to do this on your own, essentially. And his his steeple before that was at, you know, it was at the Rice Invitational winning by, you know, the 40 seconds or something, essentially on 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 his own just pushing. And people would ask me, and they're like, well, why didn't you race him in the steeple at Mount Sac or go to Stanford for a fast time and whatever? And, you know, in my head, I'm like, well, if he's going to have a shot to win, he's got to run eight, like 830 by himself, <laughs> yeah. you know, doing it from the sun. So we're going to do it at, we're going to get used to this at the Rice Invitational, you know? And and that's what and that is the reason when we got to the NCAA championship, he just went out and, you know, almost pulled it off, except for fall, but like went out and led the whole thing because that was that was the shot. Now it it, it in the acknowledgement and understanding of that is like sitting there being like he, even a kid who has a chance to win an NCAA championship, be the best in his event, has to do the work and the coach has to do the work to sit there and be like, okay, what are their strengths right now? What are their weaknesses right now? What are they capable of? And, and how do I come up with the game plan to do that? And I think, you know, in, in track, you know, often we we don't do that work where in in like let's take a sport like football right if i'm scheming as the coach and i'm saying you know what i've got i've got tom brady you know well tom brady i'm not going to get any running out of tom brady no. he's not es- escaping the pocket no. you know he's standing there and throwing so my game plan has to be different for Tom Brady versus, you know, Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, or Cam Newton. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cam Newton. Yeah. Like you've gotta you've gotta scheme differently. And it's not any attack on any of these guys, but none of them are the quote unquote greatest at everything they do. 
And I think it's the same thing there when we're talking about getting ready to compete. It's the same thing there on, okay, we've got to look at what our athlete brings to table and not, and after a long layoff, it's not what do they bring to their table at the top? It's what do they bring to the table right now in front of us? And how do we prepare them to race and set up the race and all that stuff so that they get something out of that and is beneficial versus, you know, just trying to be, you know, this all around greatness at everything at once. Right. And that's the key as a coach. A coach got to be blunt and do an honest inventory of each athlete and where they're at and where they need to go and what they need to get there um, from where they're sitting at the moment. And so what I mean by that is if we look at going back to that moonshot mentality or what have you, you know, I've had so many athletes who have this expectation that every workout should be the best workout ever. And like, it just has to, they have to demonstrate day in, or workout and workout in and out that they're in phenomenal shape every single time. And when I was a younger coach, I used to think that way too. Like, you know, this Steve's winning the workout mentality of, hey, every workout's a win. You build that positive momentum. It's faster times or more volume at a certain time every or less rest or whatever, however you want to calibrate that. And the reality is it's just not the case. And what I realized is make it one workout out of a week or one workout every, you know, four workouts, right? And because the re- the truth is very few people are ready to just s- step up and hit home runs every single day. That's kind of mentally exhausting uh, to have to have that pressure to perform at your best ever or the best you've done yet. It's great when it comes, but what ends up happening is you get a false uh, perception of reality. You get greedy and you think that the momentum and the upward trajectory is just going to continue forever and it won't. <laughs> so you got to be ready for pullbacks, right? You got to be ready um, for how to deal with and to calibrate psychologically athletes to deal with, um, you know, just being at a level of support. And so what I do now for workouts is I plan, there's one central workout a week. Like that is the big dog workout. That's the one that like we're really focusing on working a certain um, physiological, psychological calibration of the athlete's needs. And it's like whether that's the need to develop a weakness or to compound and elevate a strength, that is it. That is where we're putting a lot of eggs in that basket. The other workouts in the week are going to be more kind of support, um, more very, very manageable. You know, not not like whatever their skill set is in terms of uh, if they're more elastic or more aerobic or what have you, just stuff they can easily do and they're going to go do it and they're going to be like, that wasn't hard at all, coach. That's the point. And if you, again, if you go into this Canova course with us, you're going to see Canova does that all the time. He has a meta workout or a mega workout, right? Or his block workouts, like, two workouts split up in a day. And then the other workouts for the people that are at the, the level he's coaching are very, very manageable, like very, very not hard. <laughs> and you're like, how do you wait? What? Because he realized like, it's kind of also like a race, right? And this is part of getting people ready to race is you say, Hey, look, we got this one big one this week and get ready and wrap your mind around being ready for that. That's a reasonable ask. But if you have this mentality that, Every day is a prove yourself day. And that's what's happening now with a lot of social media and a lot of um, uh, athletes is like 
you got to prove yourself every day. Like, oh, look how fast my easy run was. Look how, you know, uh, look at my workout splits. Look at this. Look at my total mileage for the week. Look at this. You're going to burn yourself out. You're going to be exhausted. And this is the hard conversation I've had because a lot of athletes are highly motivated. They want that immediate feedback, but that's insecurity. And that insecurity, you got to beat it out of people however possible when they're returning to racing. Because until they have demonstrated ability over and over and over again or momentum on race day, they're, they're not going to believe. I mean, go, like, I can go back to like when I was working with Tara Welling initially. In the beginning, horrible racing. Like she wanted to race and she wasn't fit. She was coming back from like six months of basically seesaw training, hamstring injury, like you name it. It was just sloppy and just bleh. And she wanted to race and it was not going well. I was like, Tara, it's not going to go well. And, you know, I remember we distinctly did this like five by a mile workout at 520, you know, with two and a half, three minutes rest. She couldn't do it. Like she sat down and started crying because she was so frustrated because she physically couldn't do it. And she had already been at a level where she could do things. She could do that workout at five flat with two minutes rest. Right. So for her, it was super frustrating. And I was like, look, Give your body time. Give yourself time. Just put your head down, grind away. Just no home run workouts. Just check the box and just clock in and clock out. Okay, I want minimum amount of emotional, uh, you know, ready or uh, emotional buildup here and just have it just be a nine to five type working stiff type thing. Six months of that passes by. And then finally, like, pop, indoors. All of a sudden, she's right back around her PR ability, like low nines, running great workouts, and then goes on to have a really good, you know, 2016 and season. And why? Well, because, again, we scaffold, and I really set anchor to her expectation. I really was trying to pull her back, pull her back, pull her back. Um, and then when finally all of it started to compound and accumulate, it was like, go, go off to the races. But, two, even during that breakout year for her, not all workouts were great. Like a lot of them were pretty, you know, crappy. Why? On reflection, I realized she would have a big breakthrough race. Well, looked at the time, a big breakthrough performance. And she would be very emotionally drained, exhausted from that. Wouldn't admit it. I wasn't uh, mature enough to see that. And then that next workout would be really difficult. She wouldn't be able to complete it or just feel really drained. And I didn't have the maturity to understand being a younger coach at the time of like, okay, I really need to give her like 10 days of just fluff. And I remember Jerry Schumacher telling me that, you know, for 10 Ks or things like that, like even with his um, athletes, he goes, well, you know, if they do a 10 K, it's going to be like at least two easy workouts or two easy weeks of fluff workouts. Like, and you know, from there, he just had those general rules of thumb that a veteran coach understood after a very big effort or a big push physically and psychologically in racing, you need to pull back and temper uh, and scaffold down expectations for a little while to consolidate, essentially, to get ready for the next big swing. And that's what we as coaches, especially when we're bringing people back into the racing environment, we need to prepare people for in a training scenario like that big push workout where you're going to practice that. Like, you know, for example, like Daniel Herrera, his big workouts on Monday. And it, what it is, is it's 
600s or 700s uh, and it's going to become 800s at, you know, 60 seconds, 59 seconds, right? And it's three miles of work of that, of three miles of work, very dense at four flat pace. How do we finish it off? Well, every single Monday, the last 400 is all out, all you got, right? Um, and that has come down from at first in November, early November, it's 55s, and now it's 52 high, 51 low after doing three miles of work at four minute pace. Because I'm just trying to create immunity to essentially, and psychologically as well as physically, immunity is just, hey, I'm tired, I've done all this work, but I still have to just go all out with all I got, right? And just not worry about that pain. And that's a way that we're trying to get him, him specifically, ready for when he does return racing. Because be like, I've been here so many times before, basically every Monday at the end of my hardest workout for about six months, I've been doing this. <laughs> so then they ask at the end of a 15 or a mile <laughs> after three minutes of hard running, it's like, man, okay, I'll just give it a shot. I don't care. Let's go, <laughs> you know? I mean, that's one strategy I'm employing right now with people I'm working with. Steve, what about you? Yeah, that's that's a fascinating. I love that because it is it's getting over that um, that insecurity and making it where you're able to risk, you know, and take some risks and not have this like fear of failure, fear of whatever consequences come back at you and that's that's what it really is is insecurity because if you look at if you look at workouts you can either see them as ways to improve and get better and grow or you can see them as ways to prove that you're actually as fit as you think you are and if you consistently see them as things to prove you're fit then over time you're you're gonna suffer because like you're always trying to reach you're always trying to get to you know prove that next level prove that next thing instead of seeing them as ways to get you to that next spot so i think adding that 400 at the end is great you know one of the things i do with my college kids and not frequently but every once in a while we'll throw in an extra something at the end so what does that mean let's say we've got eight eight hundreds right they get through eight eight hundreds they feel like they're done they're like ah that relief comes off and then i'll just be like all right let's go another you know or let's do 400 you know and what happens is they quickly realize like okay i thought i was dead i thought i was complete and this might not be pretty but they get it done you know they get through it. Or sometimes I, what I do often is I give them a, the option in the range, right? So instead of 1Ks, um, instead of saying, oh, eight, 8 by 1K, I might say, you know what? We're going to do, you know, 7 to 10 by K at this effort or this pace, like your choice. And what inevitably happens is that a lot of them get to seven or eight and some say, okay, I've had enough. But, you know, a couple sit there and be like, oh, no, I can do more. I can do more. I can finish it off more. And they're making that choice to say, okay, I'm still in this spot. I can get more out of it. And I think, 
I think building in those workouts where there's choice and there's flexibility and then also like making them realize that there's more in the tank sometimes and that it's okay to go see God or go to the mm-hmm. well every once in a while is uh, is something you have to build in as a coach. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, because if you just think they're going to get a positive experience on race day by throwing them back into it, unless you're in like a hurry up situation where you are, you only have so many races left against the clock, uh, you know, against the racing calendar, they're, they're not going to have a positive psychological response to that. And that I think is super key as we've talked about over and over and over again in this workout or in this uh, podcast about leveraging workouts and creating workouts that prepare people psychologically while in the short term in the cycles, uh, the crucible of the workout, it might be look like a loss or a come to Jesus or a difficult um, and maybe not the best uh, short term uh, catalyst, but long term, it will be really valuable stuff for on race day. They'll get there and just be immune to it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's it's kind of that short-term versus that long-term mentality or that viewpoint. And as a coach, you're always trying to keep that long-term um, view to degree in there. And I think, you know, as I sit here and think about our topic on like return to racing and the psychology of it and all that stuff, a lot of it is the athlete's going to think in the short term on like, okay, next race, next workout, next whatever. And our job as a coach is to sit there and have that perspective to zoom out and be like, okay, where are they right now? What am I trying to accomplish? What role do these races, this return to racing have? How do I build upon these? You know, Mm -hmm. in the old days, you know, we even at the high school level, you used to have a very gradual scaffolding on like dual meets to this, to that, to that, you know, to major competitions, to time trial type efforts to competing type efforts. And I think we we lose that a little bit in our modern incarnation of racing. But I think if you can sit there and think, how am I scaffolding this athlete to get to where they need to be, then that's, uh, you know, that's appropriate thing for a coach to do. And even if you go back and look at like history and, you know, seasoned racers like a Ron Clark, right? Ron Clark gets a bad rap, I think, because he never won a, you know, gold medal in the Olympics or what have you, right? But remember, Ron Clark would race three times a week because there would be a lot of racing opportunity. It was kind of like pickup basketball, right? So, he'd kind of harness, he'd use racing because he was more stimulated to um, press himself in racing uh, than workout. So, he used that as a stimulation for setting himself up for the bigger uh, racing moments, right? And, you know, it'd be famous. He set a world record on, you know, Sunday and come back and get beat in 800 by some local club guys on a Wednesday. Um, but he had what we talked about, like Sarah Hall's mentality, or the Kenyans mentalities, where he could just put it behind him real quick because you understand the scope of the bigger picture of it all. And I think that is the, the key thing is to understand like someone like Ron Clark, who may not have reached the ultimate pinnacle of getting a championship medal of, of high repute, but who had the respect of everyone in the running community because he was a leader in progressing how fast 
people could go with all the world records he constantly produced. I mean, remember, Emil Zadipek gave him one of his gold medals out of a gesture of respect. I mean, you come on. How how like how awesome is that? Like that speaks so much volume right there in of itself. But it was someone he, he demonstrated a high degree of maturity and expectation of knowing when was a time just to go for it and really grind it out and also when was a time to um, understand like, hey, look, the expectation level here is to get a good stimulus in or get a good um, uh, difficult novel racing experience in that's going to help me get better down the road. And And that in this day and age as coaches, we need to be the line of support and maturity that calibrates the athlete thusly. Otherwise, they will get psychologically hijacked by this. Everyone's running fast all the time. And there's no let up mentality, right? It's kind of like, and you start to see that uh, those news reports or those tweets or those posts come out of this person ran this time, this person did this, this person did that. And then we start to think that's just the way the world is now. And it's not necessarily because you got to remember people who run at a really high level one time only and have a certain ranking often very, you know, might not be that competitive at that target meet or that championship meet at the end of the year, right? Because there was only one data point, but the person who can over and over and over and over again produce at a certain level of support or a certain level state of stability will be in the mix when it comes time to, um, you know, compete at that target race. And, you know, that's half the battle is being in the mix. <laughs> It's, it's what I always tell our athletes is uh, put yourself in position to do something. Whether you do something that day, like sometimes there's a lot of luck, right? But we've got to we've got to train ourselves to put ourselves in position where we can. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, why don't we wrap up with that thought? Um, we hope you enjoyed this podcast. As always, check out our our goods um we'll have the scholar program linked in the show notes we'll have our other endeavors like super running linked in the show notes check it out support what we're doing if you have any comments or questions or anything like that um hit us up on twitter and social media to let us know you know what you think and what kind of topics you want in the future so oh and don't forget the new training talk live is about to drop Oh, Steve, come man. on, man. You are a horrible hype man. Come. <laughs> so, new training talk live. So, the first one was about base training, and it was awesome. If you're a member of the Scholar Program, what these are, or if you want to become a member, is a monthly um, look at a key topic in coaching of runners and endurance athletes. So, the first one was base training. Steve gave his piece with a little monologue uh, podcast on it, available exclusively only to scholar members. I then gave my piece. And then we had a round table where members and Steve and I all got together on Zoom and just chatted about base building and different questions they had about it or um, follow-ups to ideas that Steve and I presented on it. And it was really, really beneficial and a lot of fun. And this next one, Train Talk Live number two is coming out, and that's going to be on peaking. So swaying to the opposite end of the spectrum, 
so what happens is Steve drops a monologue podcast one week. I drop one the next week. And on the third week, we all get together and discuss it. So if you're not a member, sign up because, yeah, these are really fun, really valuable. And a great way just to kind of get together around table and have a virtual beer or a cup of coffee together. Exactly. No, I love I love the training talk series. It it forces me to think about my my what kind of message I want to get across and what I'm doing in these different areas. And then more importantly, that discussion piece, which is huge because we have all sorts of really smart coaches. Yeah, um, dude, it's awesome. You know, spreading the knowledge. So get on that while you can. Um, you can again check it out. Links are in the show notes if you want to sign up. All that good stuff. So, uh, thanks again for listening. And until next time, uh, we hope that we gave you what you want.